Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Anderson. I'm the associate pastor here at Resurrection. And uh, as always, I'm just grateful for the technology that makes it available uh, and a possibility for us to, to connect like this on a Sunday morning, uh, also known as the one morning that I'm not wearing pants with an elastic waist. So uh, good, good to be virtually together. And, uh, you know, I think if you were, Dave and I were talking about this last Sunday, actually, if you, if you were to create a Mount Rushmore of scripture passages, what would it include? I mean, you know, John three sixteen, undoubtedly. Psalm 23, for sure. Uh, but then after those two, you'd probably have to go with 1 Corinthians 13, right? I mean, I'm not even sure what the fourth would be, but those that I just mentioned are almost universally familiar, even for those who don't profess to be Christians. I mean, if, if you've been to at least one wedding in your life, there's a pretty good chance you've heard this passage. And, and if you've seen the movie Wedding Crashers, you might remember that scene where Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson are hanging out in the pew of some unsuspecting couple's wedding ceremony. And Vaughn kind of offers this bet to Wilson of, you know, which scripture are they going to recite at the wedding today? And Wilson confidently replies, 1 Corinthians. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. And the minister rattles it off and Vaughn pays up. I mean, it is the cliche, stereotypical wedding scripture. And truly, no shame or offense meant if you had this passage read at your wedding. Uh, I'll fully admit that this was one of the scriptures that Sally and I had read at our wedding. Uh, and quite honestly, I, I think it's a shame that it has become a text that's maybe more likely to induce an eye roll or a yawn of familiarity rather than drawing a gasp of breathless admiration. I mean, after all, is there a better meditation on love out there? Is there a scripture passage that more fully and clearly and distinctly articulates what real, genuine love looks like? Has anyone ever made a more forceful argument for the importance of love than Paul does here? 
And the irony is that, well, 1 Corinthians 13 is often read in a setting where we are celebrating a relationship built on love. The exact opposite is true of the occasion that led Paul to write this chapter. I mean, as Dave touched on last Sunday, the church in Corinth was in many ways a mess. I mean, it was a diverse community marked by backbiting and class warfare and spiritual elitism and sexual permissiveness and all measure of crazy behavior, including but not limited to lawsuits between fellow church members, a man who's sleeping with his stepmother and the church is cool with it, and the wealthier members of the church feasting and getting drunk on the communion wine before the poorer members have even shown up. I mean, so we have to have that kind of context firmly in mind when we come across this great meditation on love. These words that often comfort us today were meant to confront within the context in which they were written. I mean, if we had been reading throughout the entire book of Corinthians before we got to this chapter just now, we'd quickly notice that the attributes of love that Paul lists are the exact opposite of the attributes displayed by the church in Corinth, a church marked by envy, boastfulness, pride, dishonoring behavior, and yes, even rejoicing in evil. Again, that whole stepmother thing. And so if you are a Corinthian Christian, it wouldn't take you long to realize Paul believes that love is largely absent from the life of your community. Uh, Now, in my study this past week, several commentators noted that this is perhaps Paul's loftiest writing at least from a literary perspective. There is so much beauty in how Paul has crafted this chapter that some have doubted whether or not Paul actually even wrote this or whether it's a poem that he borrowed and inserted in here. But I think this is almost certainly original to Paul. And personally, I believe Paul was uniquely positioned to write such a chapter on love because of how he had been utterly captivated by Jesus and his love. And more on that in a moment. But First, I just want to highlight a couple of verses that you didn't hear Dave read just a moment ago. Leading up to chapter 13, Paul has been giving the Corinthian church members some instruction on spiritual gifts and how they are important in the life of the church, but that they shouldn't cultivate some sort of spiritual elitism within the church where those with certain gifts view themselves as more important or better off than those with other gifts. Uh, Chapter 12, after all, is is where we find Paul's famous kind of church is a body, the body of Christ analogy, where the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, yada, yada, yada. It goes on. But Paul's concluding verse in chapter 12 reads this, but desire earnestly the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And this is just a Good time to remind you that Paul didn't give his letters chapter and verse numbers. Those came much, much later. He just wrote one long letter. And so this connection between chapter 12, verse 31, and chapter 13, verse 1, would have been so fluid and natural for the original audience to hear. And so chapter 12, verse 31 sets up our text today, where we see that Paul's goal in 1 Corinthians 13 is to show us a more excellent way. And the setup of Paul's probably would have had the Corinthians in a place of curious anticipation. Because if there's one thing, again, that is clear about the Corinthian church and their spiritual practices, is that they prided themselves on their practice of kind of what we'd call today the more charismatic gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophecy. And so when Paul says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, they must have been intrigued. Like, wait, there's 
there's something even better, something we don't know about? Have you been holding out on us, Paul? And so by urgingly, urging them to desire the greater gifts, Paul is setting them up to think, you know, they've at least got their priorities right in, in desiring and pursuing these spiritual gifts. But then he hits them with this one-two punch in chapter 13 where he tells them that such lofty gifts are nothing without love. Uh, Alan Johnson, in his commentary on Corinthians, remarks that it is not that the gifts are unimportant, but they bear fruit only where love attends them and is their driving force. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that even the most seemingly noble actions, Paul says, even like giving everything we have to the poor, it all rings hollow if it's devoid of love. And then from that point, Paul enters his famously beautiful meditation on love in verses four through seven. But before we get to that, I want to note one other verse uh, that Dave didn't read this morning in in chapter 14, verse 1, which immediately again follows this chapter. And right after Paul says, as Dave read, the greatest of these is love, Paul then writes, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's basically a repeat of the encouragement that Paul offered at the end of chapter 12 to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. But this time, Paul can now preface that encouragement by making sure they understand the only way they should be pursuing such gifts or anything, really, is by following the way of love. It forms this picture-perfect bookend of this chapter. And so let's turn our attention now to what Paul has crafted for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And let me just begin by a, a quick observation about love itself. It's so easy to get derailed by that word love. I mean, on the one hand, I think we have kind of the well-worn depictions of love offered to us by our culture, an understanding of love that's often marked more by infatuation or strong emotional feelings of affection or love defined as an uncritical tolerance of another. And I've heard many a pastor rightly critique, you know, a soft and self-serving way that love can be portrayed in our world. But then on the flip side, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with many Christians, especially pastors who, who throw some pretty heavy shade at other Christians who emphasize that God is love. Now, not many Christians would disagree that God is love, but, but many would be quick to qualify it with some other kind of attribute, such as justice, perhaps, or holiness. But love is not just one of the attributes of God alongside all the others. Love alone is the essence of all the attributes of God. As followers of Jesus, we should be able to say that God is love without reservation or qualification. We shouldn't flinch at that statement. And, and if we're unsure what it looks like for God to be utterly defined by love, then we're in luck. Because we need look no further than Jesus. Now, as I've said countless times before in other sermons, and as so many of our New Testament authors remind us time and time again, Jesus reveals everything we need to know about God. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. He's the clearest picture. In fact, it couldn't get any clearer. If we want to understand God's character, we only need Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. Everything else in life and in scripture needs to be interpreted through the lens of Jesus. Never vice versa. And Paul grasped that better than anyone as the revelation of God and God's character in the person of Jesus had utterly transformed Paul. 
And I believe that's why Paul was able to paint such an enthralling picture of love in this chapter. Uh, it, it might be a, a familiar exercise to some folks that, you know, a great way to do some self-evaluation of our, our personal spiritual growth is to swap out the, the word love from verses 4 through 7 and replace it with our own name and then just see how true that rings. You know, for example, I would read it as Matt is patient, Matt is kind, Matt does not envy, Matt does not boast, Matt is not proud, and I'll just stop it there because it already stings. I'm not those things more often than I'd like to admit. But the more helpful exercise for our purposes right now is to put the name of Jesus in as a replacement for the word love. If we hear it this way, we'll soon realize, I think, where Paul got his inspiration. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered, and he keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Friends, the love of God is the driving force of Scripture, and that love became incarnate in the person of Jesus. We see pure, divine love demonstrated in countless ways throughout Jesus' life. And we hear love resound in Jesus' teachings. After all, the greatest commandments are all about love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. A new command I give to you to love one another. For God so loved the world. And greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And we see how the cross provides the ultimate display of divine self-giving love. Which is why later John could write that God is love and that anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Which again brings us back to Paul's masterful reflection on love. Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand what loving behavior looks like. After all, Paul predominantly uses verbs, action words here in describing what love is and isn't. Love is known by what it does, not just by abstractions. And so with the time that we have remaining, I just want to kind of blast our way through Paul's descriptors of love, starting with love is patient. Renowned commentator William Barclay in his reflection on this chapter writes of this word patient, it is the word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself and who will yet not do that. It describes the man who is slow to anger. It is used of God himself in his relationship with men. And another way this verse could be translated, in fact, a way of translating it that's perhaps closer to the original language, is to say love is far from wrath and anger. From there, Paul says that love is kind. And regarding Paul's pairing of love and kindness and, and patience, Ben Witherington writes this. He says, there are These are the passive and active faces of Christian love. Love puts up with a lot, patience, but it also gives generously without thought of return, kindness. And so if, you know, the late great Mr. Rogers taught us nothing else, it is the power of kindness to transform. And in the same way that patience is not weakness, nor is kindness, both 
require great strength. And Lord knows our world could use a lot more kindness these days. But then from there, Paul moves through a a series of negative definitions of love, of things that love is not. First, that love does not envy. Because envy will always work against love. Envy makes you wish ill of the person that has what you don't have. But elsewhere, uh, in the book of Romans, Paul will encourage Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because if we have love for someone and we see them thriving and flourishing, we should delight in their thriving, not begrudge them for it. So love does not envy, Paul writes, nor does it boast and it is not proud. And I know that boastfulness and pride can maybe seem very similar and they are often connected, but I think as we might know from our own experience, I think boastfulness can frequently be a way that our insecurities manifest themselves. And I think insecurity in many ways is the opposite of pride. We boast Because we want people to think highly of us. And we worry that maybe they don't, so we boast. We let them know about it. Whereas when we're prideful, we already think pretty highly of ourselves and may or may not care whether or not anyone else thinks highly of us. But because both boastfulness and pride inherently put the focus on self, they also, by definition, work against love, which makes the other our focal point. Now from there, Paul argues that love does not dishonor others or or that love is not rude, depending on your translation. Uh, Barclay translates it as love does not behave gracelessly, which is perhaps my favorite translation. The behavior of love will always be permeated by grace. Love is also not self-seeking. The message translation reads, it isn't always me first. Uh, Going back to Alan Johnson's commentary, he remarked that love is the identification of ourselves with God's interests in others. Love drives us to think first about what others need and their interests. And we make our decisions there rather than thinking first of ourselves. Paul continues by stating that love is not easily angered. Or, Or as the late author and Presbyterian pastor Kenneth Bailey put it, love has a long fuse. Yes, a long fuse. Even, you know, when the kids won't touch the dinner that you just spent an hour preparing for them. Or when the driver on the freeway cuts you off and then has the gall to flip you the bird. Or or fill in the blank. Paul says that one thing is for sure. Being quick to fly off the handle is a surefire indicator of a lack. Uh, It's clear that Paul isn't saying, you know, if you can even recall the way that you've been wronged by someone, then you don't have love. That's not what he's saying. After all, just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, Paul recounted some of the ways that he had been wronged. How he had been brutally treated, cursed, slandered, and persecuted. He obviously hadn't forgotten those things. And yet in those same verses, Paul makes it clear that he didn't use that record of wrongs as ammunition. He didn't allow how others treated him to taint how he would then treat them. Rather, in chapter 4, Paul writes, When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When they go low, we go high. Okay, that last one's Michelle Obama. But you get the idea. Love doesn't use past wrongs as leverage or fuel for hatred. It doesn't fight fire with fire. Now, we've already touched on the next one, that love does not delight in evil, which you'd think goes without saying, but 
Remember that whole stepmother affair thing? Uh, But Paul contrasts that with the way that love rejoices with the truth, making a shift back into the positive definitions of love. And love rejoices with the truth because love knows that deceit never draws us closer to one another. False narratives can't heal us. Ignoring or concealing the truth may at times help us avoid some hurt and pain in the short term, but only truth can move us to the places of deepest love and intimacy. Paul continues, love always protects. Other translations say something like, love bears all things, or supports all things, or covers over all things, which all seem to say something a little bit different, right? And so which is it? Well, the word is, is kind of tricky to interpret because it's a word in, that in Greek is kind of related to the word for roof. And so think about what a roof does. Well, it does indeed protect, right? It also covers over the house. It bears the weight of a storm so that those within it are supported. And so I think what Paul is getting at here is that love shelters another from that which might otherwise overcome them. Love also believes all things. Or in other translations, love always trusts. And no, Paul's not arguing for a gullible naivety. Rather, I agree with Barclay who argued it means the love which always believes the best about other people. Because it is always true that we make people what we believe them to be. Oof. We make people what we believe them to be. And so love chooses to believe the best about another person rather than assuming the worst. And so we may, may we give others the same benefit of the doubt that we hope they would give to us. That is what Paul is getting at. And then love hopes all things. Love doesn't allow us to give up on a person or on a situation. Eugene Peterson chose to translate this as love never looks back. And I like that. Love causes us to be forward-looking. Since love is anchored in the God who is love, it always gives us reason to hope that no matter how bad or how good today might be, there are even better days awaiting us in God's promised future. Our past doesn't get the last word. Love never looks back. Love always hopes. And love also always perseveres. It always endures. It doesn't quit. After nearly 18 years of of marriage, I, I feel like I'm only beginning to scratch the surface on this one because when you spend a sustained amount of time with any one individual, undoubtedly it won't always be rainbows and butterflies all the time. Uh, annoying habits or hurtful comments have the potential to snowball. It can bring people to a place where maybe at times throwing in the towel or calling it quits feels easier than persevering and enduring. And know that I'm not saying for those who have maybe had a marriage and that it's just because you didn't have love in you or not enough of it, not at all. Rather, what I am saying, though, is that when relationships do somehow make it through even the fiercest storms, it's never without love. And why? Because as as Paul writes in the very next line, love never fails. Everything else we might do in faith will fade away one day. Prophecy? Paul says it won't be necessary. Speaking in tongues? Nope. Even things as vitally important as faith and hope will fade into the background while love gets center stage. 
and why love? Well, Ben Witherington remarks, love is the greatest because it alone will carry on into the next life. Faith will become sight and hope will be fulfilled, but love will simply carry on. It is the one attribute that is to bridge this age with the age to come. And Johnson argues that faith without love is cold and hope without love is grim But love is the fire which kindles faith, and love is the light which turns hope into certainty. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this chapter. For instance, Paul's words about how we presently see only in shadows or in a mirror dimly, but how eventually we will see face to face. And Paul's anticipating there the great resurrection day when the fullness of God and by extension the fullness of reality will be revealed and experienced. And Paul writes that we finally shall know fully just as we are fully known, which really is love language right there. If God is love, then in his perfect love, God already knows us fully. But one day on the other side of of resurrection is our love is made perfect. We too will know God fully because our love will be made complete in him. And so I guess as I close this morning, uh, I just want to share a a few words with you. This is just portions from a piece uh, that that pastor and author Brian Zond wrote called Love Never Ends. And in this, he's riffing off of Paul's phrase, love never fails, and, and Paul's argument that love remains as the greatest. And so Zond writes this, Love never ends. At the beginning or at the end of all things, there is love. Love abides. Love endures. When the last star burns out, God's love will be there for whatever comes after. In the end, it all adds up to love. So when you're calculating the meaning of life, if it doesn't add up to love, recalculate because you've made a serious mistake. Existence only makes sense when seen through the lens of love. At the beginning of time, there is love. At the bottom of the universe, there is love. It's in God's ocean of endless love that we live and move and have our being. Love alone has the last word. If God is love and if love never ends and if the meaning of being is love and if Jesus is the supreme incarnation of God's eternal love, then that should tell us something about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a journey towards perfection in the love of God. It's a journey that will take us a lifetime and perhaps longer, but the, tra- but the trajectory is clear. We are always moving toward the way of love. If what we're doing, praying, preaching, saying isn't moving us toward love, then it's not the true way of following the love of God who is Christ Jesus. This needs to be said because it's too easily forgotten. Loveless orthodoxy is death. God is love. God is light. God's love is expanding at the speed of light. And so what about the borders of your love? Are they shrinking? Static? Expanding? Who are you embracing in love? Fewer people? The same people? More people? I'm not worried about having borders of love that are too broad. Loving too many people will hardly be a crime at the judgment seat of Christ. So why would our borders of love shrink and not expand? Only one answer, fear. 
as I observe the world politically, socially, economically, and religiously, I observe that there are really only two forces that move people, fear and love. So when you observe the events that make the news, ask this simple question, what's at work here, fear or love? And finally, make the decision to move with love and refuse to respond to fear. Ask yourself the question, what's moving me, fear or love? You can afford to make that risky move towards love because God is love and love never ends. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your love, for the ways that you have shown us love, for the ways that because you first loved us, we are able to take words like Paul seriously and, and love others in the same spirit. And so Jesus, continue to, to sharpen us, to fill us with your spirit, to empower us to love in such a way uh, that all we come into contact with experience it, experience your love through it. Uh, and we look forward to that day when we will experience your love in pureness and fullness uh, as we love you in the same way in return. Jesus, we are grateful for all that you've done for us and for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.